So we're moving into Made Good, Living a Life Transformed by Grace for the next four weeks. And at Renew, we like to do a number of different teaching styles. So we do video sometimes with our lead teaching pastor, Bartley. We do topical series. We'll, we go through uh, FAQ series where it's frequ frequently asked questions. And then we like to really get dive down and do uh, what a lot of people say, uh, you know, the, the verse by verse or the chapter by chapter style sermon. So we're going to go through the book of Titus. So if you, you're the person, you're like, you really want to go deep or want more, or that's what you think of a church should be, um, and you don't like topical, you should probably not come to Renew because we do a lot of topical, but we also want to do verse-by-verse -verse, uh, sermons as well, and so we want to go back and forth. So this series is Titus, and we're going to go through it pretty much chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse. Um, and so we thought we'd start off the new year with made good, living a life transformed by grace. And basically, the book of Titus tells us how we do that because we cannot be eternally good by ourselves now, we don't believe that people who don't follow Jesus can't do any good. There's, there's a sense that uh, the Spirit of the Lord is in this world, and um, he prevents all chaos just breaking out. So you think the world is bad, but if you remove the Spirit of the Lord, the world would be even worse. But people can't do eternal good without the grace of God transforming their lives. And the book of Titus kind of maps out a, a road for us to do that, what that looks like, especially within the church, because there's some like church politics, government that's kind of set up for us to kind of look at and remember and to use as we move forward as the church. Now, everybody wants to get better as humans or in our Christian walk. We, wanna, we ask ourselves, hopefully you're asking yourself, how do I progress in my faith? How do I progress in my closeness to God? What, how does that actually then translate practically into my life, the fruit of my walk? And as we look at the book of Titus, it shows us that we've been given God's grace that we can live good lives. So this letter is addressed to Titus. He's a Gentile. So if you look at some background of Titus before we get into it, he was a true son in the faith, verse 4 says in chapter 1, and he leads us to believe, uh, uh, he leads us to believe Paul converted him. He was a partner with Paul in ministry. Uh, and when Paul went to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council to discuss the true nature of the gospel and the separation from the law, he actually took Titus with him. Paul took Titus with him a few different places. Titus became the poster boy for non-Jewish and uncircumcised believers, basically the Galatians. You would kind of have the book of Galatians kind of come after this kind of model of who Titus was. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, Titus is not actually mentioned in the book of Acts, but we assume him to be present very often as part of Paul's entourage. He was very closely connected to Paul. He would have been in a, a number of different spaces that you see or read about in Acts. In Titus 1.5, we see that he was left in Crete. The reason I left you in Crete, it says, and we're not exactly sure when Paul left him, here, left him there, but the only mentions we see of Crete are in Acts 2, Acts 27, and then here in Titus. But apparently it was a pretty important place to talk about and had a huge impact on the church. And then a lot of what Paul leaves for us to Timothy helps us learn how to live now, especially with the stuff that's going on in Crete. And so we kind of need to look at what's going on in Crete. But there's options here about how Titus was left or when Titus was left. The first option is this. Titus went to Crete sometimes after the event of the book of Acts. Or maybe Titus went to Crete sometimes during Paul's missionary travels, but it's not really mentioned for us. 
Maybe Paul dropped Titus off when he was off the coast of Asia Minor or Macedonia. And then a third option is this. Titus stayed in Crete when their ship ran aground there during Paul's trip to Rome. Maybe in Acts 28 you can see that. Whenever it was, we were pretty sure that the message of Jesus had reached Crete years before. So when Titus was placed there in Crete, when Paul sends him there, we know that there are Christians there. We know that there's a church that's been established there a few years before. So it's been going on for a little while. We know from Acts 2.11 that Cretans were present at Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit came and had experienced this amazing event and would have taken news of it home. So the Cretans that were there at Pentecost, they would have kind of taken their experience there and kind of taken it home, and it would have been established there before Titus showed up. But here's a note for us. There's nowhere that we can go that God hasn't gone before us. So as we, we think about this guy named Titus who's trained by Paul and he's placed in a certain area, I think about like how our campuses have gotten started at Renew. So we started uh, Mayfield West a little over three years ago, and we started here in Cambridge a little over a year ago. And I would encourage you guys that there's nowhere that we can go where God hasn't gone. And so I'm excited about what's going on here in Cambridge, and, and I would encourage you guys to remember that God has come before you and that he's with you. And that whatever is happening here, his hand is on it. And as long as we follow faithfully behind him, then we'll see him work no matter what's happening. So isn't it pretty cool that, that what you guys are doing right here and what you have been doing and what you're going to do and what God has in store for you, there's nowhere that you can go or there's nothing you can do that God hasn't gone before. That's pretty awesome. And we see that here even in Titus's life as we dive into the book of Titus. So anyhow, Paul left Titus in Crete for a reason. It says that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we can gather that Titus was establishing church leadership in Crete. So part of the reason for the book of Titus and part of the reason why it wound up in this collection of 66 books that we call God's Word is so that we can learn what church leadership looks like. And I would say just even leadership, a leadership principle in general for all of our lives, even just outside of what the church looks like. And we have to understand that this was no easy task given Crete's history. And I think this is one of the reasons why this book is here and, and why church leadership is connected to it. If we actually kind of dive down and look at the history behind Crete, this was not a metropolis with a large Jewish population, but the Jews who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost were likely Jews who were inhabitants of Crete. It is unlikely that Cretans would have gone to attend a Jewish festival in Jerusalem unless they were already Jews who had settled on the island. We need to make a note of that. We can kind of have, we, we kind of have to assume that Jewish converts from Pentecost started the beginning of the church in Crete, sometimes between 60 and 80 AD. But we should note that the majority culture and language on the island would have been Greek at the time. That would make Titus a good person to leave behind. He would have actually been like the perfect candidate. We talk about trying to pray like, like Eric's the perfect candidate for Cambridge. Uh, because he fits in here and he's hopefully being used by God, right? You're being used by God, right, Eric? Yeah? You think so? Good. But Titus is the perfect candidate to, to be sent here. <clears throat> Excuse me. We should note the majority of the culture and language of the island would have been Greek, so, so Titus is the perfect candidate. Another thing we should know is that the Cretans had a reputation. 
Paul alludes to it in, in uh, the chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Paul was actually quoting the poet Epimenides. Epimenides. Sorry, uh, it's, it's been a long morning. I apologize. It's 6th century uh, native to Crete. A few things about this guy is that he wrote this uh, some 600 years earlier. Paul often quoted this guy when he talked about him and uh, when you actually see scriptures. So in Acts 17, 28, you'll find that he actually quotes this poem about Zeus. In him we live and move and have our being. This is what Paul says about Jesus, but he's actually quoting this guy about Zeus. Here's the hymn, a praise to Zeus. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But thou art not dead, thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. These quotes were actually being used by this poet to criticize the Cretans for not revering Zeus or believing in his immortality. It's pretty interesting. So when Paul uses these quotes, he's applying reference to, Jew, to, to Zeus, to Jehovah God. Zeus was seen as the most powerful of the gods, so Paul uses the reference to point to ascribe these lofty attributes to the actual God. He's starting to use contextualization, right? He's using a missionary tactic to actually reach these people. And he's using language that they would know about a made-up creature, and he's applying it to the God of the universe. Some might wonder if the Cretans were really all that bad if this guy wrote this 600 years ago. Well, apparently, yes. So even this, is this, this poem that would have been circulating for, for hundreds of years in this culture was used because these people were struggling with the same exact problems. They were just going further and further and further and further down the destruction of their path. A Greek historian by the name of Polybus, living in the second century BC, made the following comments about Cretans. He says this, Money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but in the highest degree credible. And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain, whatever. Cretans, by their ingrained are engaged in countless public and private sedations, murders, and civil wars. I will now address myself to showing that the Cretans' constitution deserves neither praise nor imitation. Now, with few exceptions, you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete, and no public policy more inequitable. See, in Greek literature, to... Cretanize actually meant to lie. So the, like, what, could you imagine if it was like, what do you call people that live out here in Cambridge? Anything? You guys have a nickname? Cambridge, <laughs> Cambridge Knights, right? What if, what if you was known by people who lived in Cambridge that you guys were just a bunch of liars? Like, people were like, no, when you drive on the 401, just keep on going because... The place is full of a bunch of liars. 
See, when people thought of Cretans, to Cretanize actually meant to lie, to be dishonest, to be deceitful. This was the reputation that they had built over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then this church is established there, and you could imagine the culture that is mixed with them. Because we have to be honest that wherever we live and wherever we go, culture kind of mix into our worldview and what we believe. And the good things are great, but we have to fight and allow the Holy Spirit to kind of direct us to kind of throw off the things that we should throw off that aren't good. And so Titus is now being sent to this church that's in this culture that's known for being dishonest. And think how the church might be made up or things that might be happening in the church's culture because of the culture that it lives within. The Cretans seem to have retained their stellar reputation even from when these things about them were being written to when Titus was sent there. And apparently the Jews who lived in Crete seemed to be adapting to the wicked culture. It's we, we see a hint of this in chapter 1 in Titus, chapter 1, 10 through 11. It says this, For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Excuse me. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So it seems we have a very bleak situation that's happening in the church here. And Titus has a big job in front of him. Identifying and establishing leaders who will have enough character to see a pure version of the church established. Make a note of that concept of character. Because there's a lot of books being written about leadership today. There's a lot of things that you'll hear. There's the 10 points to do this or, or how to do that or how to establish this business or even within the church. Like, here's 10 points to lead your staff. But the key is character. And we'll see throughout the whole book of Titus. It's a short book, but it's got a lot of stuff in it. That the key for leadership, both formal and informal, is all about character. Note for you is here is there are no perfect people, and we must use imperfect people in advancing God's kingdom. So we're going to see a lot of kind of list of good things that leaders should have and, and a list of bad things that leaders shouldn't be doing, but... We need to realize that as we go through this, that God is going to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. And so what we're looking for when we're looking at all these things, that they're supposed to point us not to a perfect person or to a perfect system or to a perfect group, but point us to imperfect people who have enough character to know that they need to humble themselves and to place their faith at the foot of the cross and actually follow God with their life. That's the mark. I never stop being amazed by the idea that when I get frustrated, and I, I remember that I'm one of those imperfect people. Like if there's any good thing that being a pastor does is that it reminds you that you're terrible all of the time. <laughs> that I have to follow Jesus or else I'm no good by myself. So some lessons that we can learn from following imperfect people and not placing people on a pedestal is this, that we never put any believer too high on a pedestal. So as we go through this and we look at the qualifications for a leader, we have to keep that in the, the back of our minds as we move through this, that never put any believer too high on a pedestal, even our leaders or our elders and the different people we're going to be talking about. People will sometimes fail, people will always come and go, and no one is irreplaceable. Because God will use anybody. And if you're, not being will, being, if you're not willing to be used by God, 
he's got somebody else he's going to use behind you. Number two is this, as church leaders, we still need to look for character and develop it. There's a lot of stuff we have to look for. People have to be able to teach. People have to be good at running youth group. People have to be able to play instruments. But the most important thing, again, is to look for character. Sometimes we're guilty of always wanting to add people more than developing those that we have as well. So you guys think of in your local context as Cambridge, like who here that are connected to you can keep developing in their character so that you can be, you can kept being, or keep being used by God more and more and more to see what God might do here through you. Now, with those lessons in mind, and as we read this book, we are going to see Titus's challenge of establishing leaders and establishing Christian morals and values. Paul's going to talk about a few things. He's going to, empowering those who love what is good, rebuking those who resist what is good, doing good for the sake of the gospel, and that we are actually saved in order to do good. We will look at these four things over the next four weeks, and when we come when we come to Christ, we initially recognize his grace, his death on the cross, and the free, free, <clears throat> and the free offer of forgiveness and salvation. That grace is free, but it's not cheap. That the gift of God's grace costs Jesus his life. God expects for us, for, for those of us who receive his grace, to live in accordance. Now make no mistake, Paul about it, wherever, wherever the gospel of Jesus really takes root, and Paul makes this clear, things change. People are made good through the power of the gospel and the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And we want to use this series to encourage all of us at Renew across all of our campuses to grow in grace and also in goodness, not to just do things to get something or to get somewhere, right? That's bad religion. But to do good things because you have a good God who loves you, right? All the time at my campus, I'm always trying to reiterate this because we have some people that they want to work real hard, but working real hard is good, but working real hard out of the right mind frame, heart position is what, is what really matters, Right? If I do the dishes for my wife just to get something so that she'll love me more, it's an unhealthy relationship. But if I do the dishes because I love her and I know that she loves me already, that is a healthy relationship. Right? You don't do things to get God's love. You do things because he already loves you and he's, he's helping you move forward in your goodness. Right? That's what we call sanctification, fancy words that God helps you progress in your holiness with him. But it has to be based off of his love and affection and his purpose, who he is, what he's done for you, rather what you're trying to do for him as we talk about this, doing good. Our lives ought to radiate with a certain quality and goodness. What makes the difference is that it shouldn't be goodness from ourselves, but God's grace radiating through us that produces goodness. So week one, what we're going to do is we're just going to try and run through the first nine verses here in chapter one, and we're saying that we're going to be talking about empowering those who love what is good. We're going to hive off these first nine verses to go through this week and then kind of pick apart the book as we go forward. So if you read with me, if you read, if you will read with me, chapter one, verses nine, or verses one through 
verse 9. It says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders <clears throat> excuse me, in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray real fast. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for the opportunity just to get to, uh, together. Um, thanks for letting me be here. I, I pray for the hearts and the minds that are in this room. I pray for your spirit to be moving for you to teach us what you want to teach us, for us to then act upon what you want us to act upon. God, may you, uh, uh, may you push your word forward and, and move my words out of the way. And may this book of Titus come alive in our hearts over the next four weeks. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're just going to go through it. Verse 1. So in verse 1, Paul highlights our theme of goodness right away by saying, servant of God. An apostle, so he actually knew his purpose for the faith of God's elect, it says. And so he lived to see people come to faith in Jesus for the faith of God's elect. And the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, Paul knew he needed to teach people the truth. So that they would become godly. He wanted them to be made good. And so you see that this idea of being made good is connected to this idea of knowing being God's servant. Knowing your purpose and knowing how that becoming good starts. It starts with the transformation of God first and then soaking in his word in our lives. Verse 2, this knowledge rests on the hope of eternal life we see. He says that God, who does not lie, promised this. It's kind of funny, right? It's ironic for the Cretans, right? You see how masterful Paul is? He would have known this about Cretans. Everyone would have known it. And so right off the bat, in the second verse, what is he doing? He's starting to make an impression. He's starting to put something in. He's saying, a God who does not lie. So for all of you who live in a culture that's known for lying, one thing, and an important thing you need to know is that there is a God who does not lie. There is a God who is not fake. There is a God who does not live with all this mythology that you would have known. There is a God who is perfect, who is blameless, and he does not lie. 
Verse 3, now, it is coming to light <clears throat> through the testimony of the, possible, of, of the apostles. See, this is the Christian life in a nutshell. It's really pretty basic. As believers, we go into places and share our knowledge of the gospel with people. Some of those people respond, and we teach those people God's word. Verse 3, and, it, and at and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. A lot of times we try to make this, this life of faith so complicated. We place a bunch of burdens on ourselves or we're not sure. We live in anxiety because we're asking ourselves, what does God want me to do? I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do for God. But there's a simple truth that whenever you're kind of questioning your faith or feeling a burden or not sure what to do, there's one simple truth, and it's this. You're supposed to go somewhere and be a light for Jesus. It's as simple as that. We were talking, and uh, some of you have heard about GCBI. I'm sure you have some students here. One of them was playing up here in the band. Two of them were playing in the band. You have two students, right? But not two were playing in the band. Or they were... You're, you are a student. I always forget that you're a student because you're, you're also a micro too. <laughs> Elizabeth doesn't like, one day she heard because of how we staff, one day she heard the term macro staff and micro staff and Elizabeth won't li li live it down. So she gives me a hard time about it. So I'm giving her a hard time about it now. You're welcome. I love you, Elizabeth. You're right. There were two students up here. My bad. Uh, I'm spending the next two months with them in class, teaching, helping facilitate the class, and we are talking this week, and we are the kind of question of like, well, how do you know like when to act and when not to act for God? And I believe a lot of us place a lot of anxiety in our life, especially when we're for no reason at all, and we're looking for this answer that's up in the clouds when it's actually right here in front of our face. It's be faithful to a faithful God and then make a decision and God will honor it or he'll change it for you. <laughs> do the simple thing that God's called you to do and that's to love him, to love your neighbor and to tell people about him. That's a charge for all of us, not just missionaries, not just pastors, not just whoever. You've been called to the Great Commission. Every one of us that's in this room that places our faith in Jesus and if you're unsure of what to do, just do that. And everything else will kind of fall into place behind it. Christian life can be basic sometimes. Verse 4, to Titus, my true son, Paul led to Titus to, <clears throat> Paul led Titus to faith. We see this. And then we see this language, grace and peace. And this is Paul's common greeting that happens. As we move on to verse 5, it says, The reason that I left you in Crete, you, know, you now understand the background here that's happening in Crete and what Titus has to deal with. And whenever it, it was trusted that Titus came here, his purpose was very clear. Titus would have known very clearly his purpose. And it would have started with this basic concept of the Christian life, right? To straighten out what was left unfinished. We see this, these, these words here. We've learned at Renew that it takes all types to start and to maintain churches. All types of different leaders, all types of different people within the body of Christ. Everyone brings their own gifting and everyone needs to be valued and working together for this thing to click. 
if it's all on Eric's shoulders, whoo, right? <laughs> the initial founders kind of are chaos people. So if you know anything about church planning, the initial founders of starting something are a little chaotic. But those who come soon after need to be able to organize to straighten things out. If you have those organizational gifts, we need you. Eric needs you. And that, I'm, not, I'm not actually trying to call Eric out. I would say this wherever I was. <laughs> we see the language to appoint elders in every town. So this idea of actually coming in and establishing church leadership. This is part of the, the charge to Titus. It's very clear. And so if you're not sure of the elders in our church across all of our campuses, here's a list for you just so you know. Our church elders that are on staff, so we say that all of our pastors that hold a, a campus pastor position or a lead, excuse me, lead teaching pastor, um, we hold these guys as elders in the church. So Bartley, Mitch Van Russell, myself, Eric Jensen, Andrew Wood, and then we have a set of, of, of elders who are not employed by the church uh, Gerald Tarsicius, and there's an asterisk by his name because he's actually the chairman of our elder board. Barry Jones, that's such an awesome name, Barry Jones. Uh, he's a cool guy too. Gary Coates, Aviv Talang, Terry McDonald, Rob Wood, and Greg Bifus. Yes, Greg Bifus is an elder. Um, I'm just kidding, I love you, Greg. Uh, all of these people are charged by God, them and their wives, to be in leadership of our church. I encourage you to get to know these men and their wives, and they, they are godly people who should, uh, uh, you guys should hang out with them, ask them questions, get to know them, pick their brains, live in community with them. If you're not bugging Greg and Christina's house enough, go bug, go bug them, go hang out with them. They've been selected according to the same qualifications that Paul gave Titus. You know, if, if we are to be a community of do-gooders, we need to start with our leadership. Verse 6, then we move on and we see the language, uh, <clears throat> an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are, not, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So this idea of blameless, no serious accusations should be against them since coming to Christ. This doesn't mean sinless, right? Because there are no perfect people. This concept of blameless, if you actually kind of study it out, it's this idea that, that there, there shouldn't be this charge against them. <clears throat> this thing that stands out. This thing that keeps recurring. This kind of recurring sin that, that people can keep bringing charges against them for. It's this concept of being above reproach. It's what blameless means. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean perfect. <clears throat> but he isn't listening or continually right along. So this concept of not blameless also holds this idea of not listening. That your church leaders just won't listen when they're being called out. Character matters. It's everything. Again. Recent movements like Me Too have shown that, that misdeeds will come to light when they're held in secret. And the longer they're held, they'll just, the, the larger they'll come out. So you need to be in community with your leaders so that you know them, but also for their benefit, so that it's, it's, it's less easy for them to hide things. Because we're all sinners and we all want to hide things at times. 
So live in community with them, know them, so they can be blameless in front of you. The husband of one wife, a one-woman man, so to speak. Some have used this to say that divorced person can't be in church leadership, but that's not really the heart of the text that's happening. That's not the most natural understanding. God isn't a fan of divorce. God really doesn't like it. It's not a part of his plan. It's not a part of his covenant. There's very strict kind of outlines about it. But there are biblical grounds for divorce, and there are also people who come to faith after already having been divorced before they knew Jesus. And I've been a part of churches that kind of hold a more strict teaching on this, and I've been a part of churches that are a little looser. At Renew, we want to follow the text as closely as possible, but we also want to work and live with real people. And so we're, we're kind of we're in the middle ground here on this. A husband of one wife. The big idea here is that it's important, it's an important role and we want the best we can in church leadership. That's what Paul's going after. We want the best we can get in church leadership. And again, this isn't skill, this isn't perfection, this is character. This is what we have to keep coming back to. Not the guy who can, who can preach the best sermon, not the, not, not the youth pastor who can lead the greatest youth group, not the worship leader who can like sing the best tunes. Yeah, we want some skill. Yeah, we want to do things with excellence. But what always is underneath, what always matters first is character. Give me somebody who has better character over the person who can preach the best sermon in the world any day of the week. And that way, as you see Paul make these charges here in the scripture, that's what's going to keep coming back, coming back, and coming back. We see the language, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. We look for elders whose children are following God at Renew. Obviously, sometimes people come to faith after their children have started down a certain path. There are also cases where elders, elders' children have experienced unique, difficult circumstances. Maybe they were abused or experienced something difficult, and so this changes things a bit of our expectations. Again, the big idea is to get people with the most exemplary families we can. 1 Timothy 3.5 kind of confirms this. If you kind of go to a, a sister book for this book, if anyone does not know how to, to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church, it says. It's, there, there's kind of a simple kind of rule that when you look for a, a leader in the church, and not just like uh, if you're going to hire a pastor, but just any kind of leader within the church, look at their family. Look at their family. Again, this isn't perfection because if you come to my house on a Friday night and you just kind of walk in unannounced, it's, it's chaos, <laughs> right? I have four kids, 10 and under, so the scale, hopefully you can tip the scales for me a little bit. But again, it's this kind of general living with, before you. So hopefully if you're at my house enough, if you're part of my local community, you'll get an idea that I'm doing the best I can and I'm raising my kids in a godly fashion. And if they are a little bit wild and disobedient, that it's not because I'm being overbearing, and it's not because I'm not teaching them godly principles, it's not because I'm not trying to model Jesus in front of them. 
And if you live in community with your leaders, you'll know the difference between people's, your leaders' kids and their path that's been created and if, if, if they've helped with it or if it's just kind of the circumstance they're dealing with. Because you'll be in relationship with them and you'll be able to live and communicate with them in a certain way that allows you to understand this verse in a nuanced way. So, and this helps redefine success in a better way as, as well. You, you should notice if your leader is prioritizing their family in a certain way. Because success is different in the church culture. It should be than it is in the world's culture. Verse 7, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. We see this word blameless again. Overseer, sometimes translated bishop, but clearly refers to the same office. And this is a quick FYI, and the New Testament doesn't say there can be only one elder overseer per church. Sometimes you have some denominations that kind of, in, 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 they'll kind of pick apart this verse and say a certain number of overseers or bishops or certain set a certain thing uh, for their denomination or their local church. But in reality, we don't really know. It just says appoints overseers. Again, the blameless, it's mentioned he, to oversee God's work. This idea of being blameless is connected. We get to this, this kind of, uh, this language of not overbearing. This can carry with it a sense of not being self-willed, not being about self. To gratify, because if you kind of pick apart the actual language here, that literally means to gratify self or be indulgent. To gratify self or be indulgent, not self-willed. The point is, elders shouldn't be self-focused or arrogant or always about getting their own or pleasing themselves. Headstrong. Elders need to be focused on others and be team players. This idea is if the church that leaders that you have, if, if, if they're always out hanging out for themselves, there should be, you should notice that. And if you're expiring to be a leader in some context, wherever you sit, whether it's here within the church or in your home or your job or your community of friends, you'll quickly be recognized as a leader and people will follow you faster if this is true about your character. If people notice that you're not all about self, people will gravitate towards you and they'll follow you. Not overbearing. Paul keeps moving on, not quick-tempered. Now this is more difficult for some people than others. Some people have a little bit of shorter fuse than others. They get pretty, pretty hot, pretty fast. I actually used to struggle with, with a huge anger problem when I was younger. Uh, I grew up in a pastor's house. Uh, my dad was, was a pastor for as long as I can remember. I moved around a bunch when I was a kid, my dad was actually fired. He was kicked out of church when I was 11 years old. And then we went out, and my dad was out of work for about a year and a half. And so we struggled putting food on the table. I blamed God for it. And so my whole teenage years, I was just angry. I knew the Bible cover to cover, and I could talk the talk, but I did not walk the walk. And ho thankfully, God radically brought me back to himself around when I was around 19, 20 years old. And that's a longer story than what we have but the point is, is I developed a pretty anger, a pretty big anger problem. And then as I started following God, thankfully, by his grace, he has radically kind of changed my disposition. Now, some would say I'm too even killed. 
Like some people, like uh, some people say they can't read me because I walk in a room and I'm just kind of like even all the time. And then I just tell people, if you knew me before, you'd like this version of me. So it's okay. <laughs> Not quick-tempered. We try to remember on staff, it only takes one or two incidences to ruin your credibility. So as you follow God and you want people to follow you as a leader, know that it only takes a few times for you to kind of run off as a hothead on your own to kind of ruin the credibility that you have in somebody's life. Because if our number one purpose is to be a testimony for Jesus, to live for him, to love him, and tell other people about him, this, this not quick quick-tempered thing is a pretty big deal because people aren't going to listen to you <laughs> if this is how you're running with your character. Not given to drunken drunkenness, it says. I came from a strict background, so, so I always chuckle at this verse. My, my, my household was like a, you know, no, no drop of alcohol household. Uh, my current household that I run is, is not that way. That's all I'll say. Um, but again, it's the, it's, it's, it's the heart of, of what Paul's going after that, that matters. And most, unfortunately, a lot of churches, a lot of people kind of like pick this apart and argue over it and make stupid rules about it. And it's like, it's about the heart of what Paul's saying. And elders were not given to be given much wine, it says um, in other places. So the idea is that people shouldn't be having weaknesses about it. So if you have a weakness with something and that goes with anything, anything that controls your life, you shouldn't do it. And if you live around people in community, close community with people that have that same weakness, you should probably think about not doing it as well. And if you have a leader that can move and interact that way, right, and live out the heart of that verse, that's a good leader to follow. It goes on, it says, not violent, not a hitter or a brawler, right? I mean, I know Eric struggles with this, but, no, I'm just kidding. Somebody can't, like, your, your leader shouldn't be starting fight clubs. Rule is we don't talk about it. But by extension, many see this idea of being contentious, so just even being cantankerous, Right? If you, when they deal with a, a difference or, or, or uh, a difference of opinion or a problem with the church, they should be dealing with it in a certain way, and you should be able to notice that. So, this is a lot of stuff that elders shouldn't do, and I know we, we need to we need to kind of close. We need to get through this. I know we, this has kind of been a while, but we're just trying to get through these verses as fast as possible. Um, but Paul moves away from kind of saying all this bad stuff, and then he goes on and he says, okay, but this is what, this is what the good stuff you should look for in a leader. And I just want to kind of move through those as fast as possible before we wrap up. And so verse 8, it says hospitable. The Bible talks a lot about hosp hospitality. Paul mentions it the top of the list in the positives, right? So when Paul moves into the positives here about leaders, what's the first thing he, he kind of mentions? Hospitality. I think hospitality is one of our most lost arts, especially when it comes to evangelism. If you're with us like um, a year and a half ago, or maybe closer to two years ago at this point, we did a series called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And if you, uh, that's also written, it's also a book by the same name. Uh, so I encourage you to, to grab the book off of Amazon, read it. It's a great book. Um, 
And it talks about actually being a testimony and using hospitality. So you don't need any super special skill. And your leaders need to, they need to have at least some makeup of hospitality. Some people have better gifts than others. And not every leader you have is going to have the spiritual gift of hospitality. But they at least should know it's important and interact with it. And kind of be leading the church in that end. And I think Eric and Austin are actually super good at this. So follow them in it. Because it makes a big difference. Your leader should love what is good. Here's our theme, of, uh, our theme of made good, and there's not really much to say about that, but follow people who love what is good. Self-controlled, another thing in Crete that kind of is a problem in Crete, right? Crete's known for being uh, um, gluttons and in, indulgers and liars. and So now this is the opposite of that, self-controlled. Paul mentions this actually five times within two chapters. That's how big it is. Your leader should be self-controlled, hospitable, love what is good, self-controlled. And Paul mentions it over and over and over again. It says upright, literally just, to be just. This is what this word means. Your, your leader should be searching for just, justice, be just. They know it's God's standards and they live it out. As Paul moves on, he uses the term holy. There should be a visible sense of seriousness, this, like, this serious spiritual like gravitas about them, kind of. There should be just something different. They can be goofy in their personality, or they can be serious in their personality, and there can be leaders in all kinds of uh, uh, different personalities within the spectrum but no matter what their personality, you should get this sense that they are serious about their spiritual life and they're serious about Jesus. It's not just this kind of thing. Disciplined, he goes on, kind of again like self-controlled. Gives the idea of someone who is ruled from within. An elder should be somebody who are two things, who are spirit-led and are self-led. And it's important that they're not flipped. They should be led by the Spirit, hopefully first, and then they should be self-led, self-led after the Spirit directs them. And by self-led, it means not somebody who you have to keep calling back, like the guy that you have to keep calling to come to church. The guy that you have to keep having the conversation about, about this one specific thing, and it's just over and over and over again. It's not that there aren't ups and downs, it's not that leaders don't struggle again, there are no perfect people. But it's this idea that you know your leader is doing as much as possible to throw themselves at the face or their face at the foot of the cross to actually humble themselves before God. And then they're picking themselves up and they're moving. They're moving. And you know the difference. Spirit-led, self-led, discipline. Must hold firmly to the gospel. 1 Timothy 3 also mentions this. Able to teach. <clears throat> Sometimes we put too much emphasis on the whole teaching part. Not all your elders, not all your leaders have to be the best teachers in the world. They have to know the word of God and they have to be able to interact with somebody based off of it. That's it. That's the idea. Be able to encourage people and to refute people because they know the truth. So, I know this has been like, I get to come, the first time I get to come to Cambridge, I preach a message that like, this is not my comfort zone. I'm comfortable in a different style of preaching, so... But we just had to get through these nine verses. 
right, and kind of set, and this is kind of setting the groundwork for what's going to come the next three weeks as we see this idea of being made good. But as we conclude, as we wrap up, what we need to understand is that we want to, we, we all want to, we all want to do this, right? Paul's talking about elders, he's talking about church leaders, but the principle is for all of us. Because all of us are leaders somewhere. You're either a leader here in church, or you're a leader in your home, or you're a leader amongst your friends, or you're a leader at your church, or at your work. You're a leader with somebody somewhere, even if you're not a leader. And you're also a child of God all the time. And if our main focus, right, what Titus starts this off with, like this idea of, listen, here's the deal. Go somewhere as a Christian, go somewhere and be a light for Jesus. That's simple. And if that's your purpose, just like it's my purpose, and maybe you're not a leader, but you're a leader somewhere, then these principles should apply to your life as well. And so as we start off this idea of looking at what it means to be made good by the grace of God, I would ask you guys to ask yourselves how you match up. So a challenge for you is to to, in your prayer life this week, and I would encourage you to write it down. If you're not somebody who journals, write it down. I would encourage you to, to say, God, how do I match up to the bad list and how do I match up to the good list? What are you doing in my life? Does my life resemble the things that, that, that Paul kind of charges Titus to, to teach people against from not doing? Or does, does my life start kind of match up with the things that, that Paul says these are good things for a leader to, to aspire to? If you guys don't search your hearts in your prayer life or have a, have a regular practice for that, I would, I would encourage you to start. And I would start with this. Like, God, I know, I, I know my purpose as a Christian is to love you with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, love my neighbor as myself, and to show people who you are. And I know that my character following after you matters. And God, does my character match how you want me to live? Is it going in the direction that I have left here to kind of put it against? The band come up and close us with a song and pray.